Katie Herzog, how's it going? Good, Jesse. Did you notice that we got an email recently um, from Ancestry.com? I did. Yeah, I was curious what that was about. <laughs> okay. So remember our on our last, I think this was on our last episode, we talked about the pretendian in Wisconsin, the, the white woman who, uh, what was her name? Kayla Claire? Yeah. You want to give a little a little refresher on that? Yeah, she was a um, local Native American artist and <laughs> activist until it turned out she wasn't and right. had been spending a lot of time in a tanning booth. Okay, so pretty soon after we recorded that, that episode, I got on Facebook and there was a friend of mine I hadn't seen in a long time and I just wanted to check in to see how she was doing. So I went and looked her up on Facebook and I realized we weren't Facebook friends anymore. She'd unfriended me. Um, she had also, I realized, changed her name. From something very, I would say, um, white sounding to something uh, a little bit more ethnically ambiguous. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> also changed her pronouns. She's now a they them, and also two spirit. And I, I looked, I looked her up. I googled her, and it turns out that she now wears a lot of turquoise. She wears feather earrings, and she now works in a. I want to be a little bit vague here, but let's say a sort of NGO type for. Native Americans. She, she now oh my has. My God! Yeah. And she had, wait. She had never talked about this before when you were friends with her. No, absolutely has That's never. Crazy. Never How many of these it? are there? At I'd, some point, three quarters of the Native American population is just to be white girls. <laughs> Somebody should just like these tribes should just publish a database so you can look up everybody who is announcing that they are one sixteenth Cherokee or whatever. She has leaned heavily into this. What I believe is probably fake. Cherokee heritage. And the reason I think it is fake is because she has never, she never once mentioned, I'm sorry, they never mentioned being Cherokee a single time when I was friends with this person. And I wanted to find out the truth of the matter. So I got a, a, a free trial to ancestry.com to try to figure out if she is actually Cherokee or not. You can check someone else's ancestry with ancestry.com? Yeah. I mean, what are they going to do? Like ask her ID? You just put in the name. I did run, immediately run into a problem, which is that I don't know their parents' names. So I only made it one step. Absolutely one step. You thought you thought you'd just be able to put their name in. You're like, yep, they're a Cherokee. Yeah. Also, why did you use the block to report an email? Because I, I wanted I don't want to pay for this and I already used the free trial for my to for what my What if I own. wanted to use block to report an email to look up if someone's really black? <laughs> you can use it. Look, I canceled the free trial after just a few days because I couldn't get anywhere. So I think there's still like eleven days left. Look, I feel free to look up Camille. I understand that there's some like, uh, this is a little bit historically icky, but I think we're fast approaching a point where all white Americans need to have an indelible tattoo put on their arm, (laughs) identifying them as white so that they can't pull this bullshit anymore. Maybe like a number? (laughs) Yeah, a bar. Katie, what is the name of this definitely white podcast this is locked and reported and i'm katie herself and i'm jesse single and uh today uh later on you're going to talk about actually we have a lot of gender stuff today gender is the new race mm-hmm. and there's gonna be a lot of gender in this episode mm-hmm. unavoidable you're going to talk about a film that has been met with some controversy yes the uh cancellation of a supposedly transphobic fascist film yep uh, and we're also going to talk about a couple articles in the New York Times that have generated controversy because they have to do with the question of whether kids should be able to transition their gender without their parents' knowledge. Uh, not a controversial subject at all. Uh, but first, we have a sort of Florida-heavy top of the show. We've got some updates about America's dong, Florida. <laughs> all right, Jesse. You want to start us? Yeah. So last week, we talked about Chris Rufo, uh being appointed um, – uh, as what a trustee, right at the New College of Florida. Uh, mm-hmm. You and I are both don't like the way Chris Rufo does business. 
I pointed out, I think you more or less agreed that like, we both thought that sort of the idea of wokeness run amok at the average public university in a place like Florida was probably a bit overstated. We did get a number of emails. Uh, disag- I don't, I, I actually didn't really agree no, with you that. Said, I, it was your idea and I, I just nodded along. I, I didn't <laughs> no. agree with it. If you if you recall, what happened is that you made this statement about how Florida doesn't have a wokeness problem. I think that was your exact words. I don't think yeah. I went that far. I think that's exactly what you said. Uh, you said Florida is based, uh, not cringe. It's based. And I said, um, Jesse, I think you're entirely wrong about this. This is how I, I recall the conversation going. Hold on. Hold on. Let me pull up the transcript. <laughs> okay. Wait, Katie. This is a direct quote. I love Chris Rufo. I want to <laughs> hug and kiss him. Jesse, uh-huh. that's gross, Katie. I think you should be more nuanced. Katie, fuck you, Jew boy. That's <laughs> something does, like that, that does sound like a comedy. <laughs> anyway, I'll just read a few uh, notes we got. I thought people had fairly reasonable critiques of this. Uh, so here's one from a listener. Frankly, I was surprised to hear this take. And wait, have I explained enough what our take was? Oh yeah, just it wasn't it wasn't our take; it was your take. The idea that we need to a distant social conservative to serve on the board of the new school. No, no, I don't think that's what people. I don't think that's what people were arguing with. I mean, maybe that people had an issue with that, but I think there was one particular thing that you said that a lot of people thought was wrong, and I also agreed was wrong. You said. Basically, you didn't think that big schools in places like Florida would have a wokeness problem. And I countered with an example from a rural school in North Carolina that my parents taught at and said that if it is there, if it is at Western Carolina University, and it is, then it is more widespread than just the Hampshires and the Smiths of the world. Here's an email we got. Frankly, I was surprised to hear this take, and I would love to hear more of your thoughts on how this relates to Rufoian tactics, because I think there's a gap here that leaves me feeling a bit separated from my favorite woke critical thinkers. I attended the University of Georgia from 2013 to 2018 and then worked there for a couple years after. I can't say I came up against the 0.1% most extreme versions of woke ideology, but to say that liberal bias was overwhelming would be an understatement. I bounced around STEM departments during my undergraduate years, and every single professor I had that dared discuss political or social issues was in line with what you would expect to see on any given day on Twitter. Um, The person goes on to point out that at places like UT Knoxville and UT Austin, they're very woke. I I wouldn't have compared those two. It doesn't surprise me UT Austin's woke, but... Um, uh, all that is to say it's just not that confined and I have to say I think the heterodox group of thinkers that cover this stuff may be underanalyzing what exactly it is going to take to turn the tide if you want a more open less identitarian culture in universities and beyond um, I mean that that's just some of the note uh, I just I don't think Chris Rufo actually wants openness and free speech no here's one he doesn't he, he doesn't he's an ideologue he wants bias he just wants it to be conservative bias and he's been he's been open about yeah. this uh, here's an email we got from a, a college professor in Florida who who, who we know. Um, this is just a snippet of it. For faculty, most of us just want to do our jobs, but I think most public unis are indeed woke, with air quotes, because A, a small minority of very vocal and aggressive faculty are successful at cowing most everyone else, and B, this is abetted by administrators who give uh, zero shits about actual moral principles one way or another, but either see the woke stuff as boxes to be checked in advancing their careers or live in terror of Twitter mobs, even at community or now state colleges where we'd expect the least woke student body. It doesn't matter as long as admins and a few faculty are aggressively pushing it on everyone else. In other words, the culture of the university is less determined by the mean, median faculty student and more by those who, for one reason or another, have the most actual institutional power, 
which at this point remains mainly the woke, just as it does at so many other progressive institutions. I will say that resonates for me with journalism, because mm-hmm. I still don't think the average journalist is particularly radical in their politics, but it's more small groups of radicals can cow everyone. Right. So maybe they're right about universities. Right. I think there's a big difference between the average beat reporter in Nebraska and the average staffer at the New York Times. Well, I'm saying I think even the average staffer at the New York Times is not that radical, but the radical ones have a lot of power. In, especially the ones like working on the tech side there who don't even do journalism but have a lot of opinions about blah, blah, blah. We've discussed this before. Right. Um, you know what we should do? There needs to be a question added to the census. I know there's been a lot of talk about adding sexuality and, and gender identity to the census. I think we ne- actually need to add based or cringe. Yep. And each of those has their own tattoo you get after you – after the uh-huh. government maintains a, a database of – Based, pe- yeah, I like this. Uh, <laughs> our own production assistant, furry friend, Tracing Woodgrains. He also wrote a response that we'll be cross-posting from his Substack to the Blotter Reporter one. Make sure to read that as well. We'll include a link in the show notes. Yeah, there was a lot of good discussion about this. People pointing out how wrong you are all the time um, on our on our Substack page. And if you want want to join that, you can at blotterreporter.org. Blotterreporter.org. Okay, another Florida update. Too much Florida this episode. Rebecca Jones, Katie. Oh, Our old God. friend Rebecca Jones is back in the news. Give everyone a 30-second refresher on on what this person is. Rebecca Jones is a... A hero. A hero. A shiro. What would be a non-binary hero? Zero? Zero. Zero. Zero, actually. Uh, Rebecca Jones is a woman who made news at the beginning of COVID because she claimed to be a whistleblower. She claimed that the DeSantis administration was cooking the books when it came to Florida deaths, uh, COVID-related deaths. And she was then positively covered by the media as the whistleblower that she claimed to be. Well, she's not a whistleblower. She's a fraud. And as we talked about on the last episode, she has a history of doing things like making up like like building sock puppet accounts to write articles about her or to spread misinformation about her or reddit comments about her she is a serial fabulist wait you made it sound like she she does sock puppet accounts to spread misinformation about herself is that what you meant it, she does oh she does Should i remember that from the episode <laughs> It is misinformation. It's like shit that she wants to be true, but it's not true. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. I'm not trying to be difficult. Um, Yes, she is back to her, I'd say old ways. She's back to her current ways this week. She tweeted out on January 24th, breaking. Now, just um, this is actually useful for news literacy. You know an outlet is trustworthy when they put breaking not only in all caps, but they put exclamation marks, three of them, on both sides of breaking. That is a signal that you can trust whatever news that follows. Or if it's if the Spanish language publication, upside down exclamation marks on mm-hmm. one side. Breaking. Matt Gates is believed to be having an affair with his press secretary, Joel Valdez. According to three independent sources, Gates' office and his wife have not responded to requests for comment. This is not Gates' first affair, nor is it his first with a man. <laughs> Very first of all, very sexy imagery is now flooding my head. Unfortunately, Jones has presented no evidence of this. It goes without saying that if you are a crazy person and you reach out to someone with a crazy theory about them and they don't respond, their lack of a response doesn't mean anything. Okay, that one was crazy, but that is not the only insane thing that she tweeted about this. She also said, update, all caps, source in Matt Gates's office says office is an upheaval they expect the FBI to raid the office any day now and have photos of Gates making out with young men. Gates has previously been in open relationships with men, 
still need photo expert to authenticate photos, even if this was true, which it's not true because nothing that comes out of Rebecca Jones's mouth is true. But why would the why would any authorities be interested in his softcore porn? Is it illegal in Florida to make out with guys? I mean, in Ron DeSantis's Florida, I believe <laughs> you know what it was. Been outlawed, except in my, the Miami Autonomous Zone. You know what it was? He said gay. That's what it was. He said gay. <laughs> so okay, so gay guys are allowed to have sex as long as they don't say we are having gay sex during it. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, you got to do G star star. <laughs> And Rod DeSantis has to watch it happen to make sure you don't say it. It'd be so funny if he quietly wrote that into the law. Also, I get to watch to make sure no one says gay. <laughs> Someone is furiously writing fan fiction about this right now. Um, yeah, I don't think she's even suggesting it's a legal issue. I think she's suggesting it's a scandal, which... Yeah, I mean, I guess he's a public official. Goes without saying, I'm not I'm not a Matt Gates fan, but this is completely ridiculous. Um, it's weird how these like there have been rumors circulating about Matt Gates' sexuality for years, and it is I mean, weird. Gay is that- right in his last. <laughs> it is bizarre how quickly people turn a little bit homophobic when they think that a Republican might be a closet case. There was a time when. Um, I wrote about bud sex for New York Magazine a couple times, which is this interesting yeah. phenomenon. It's like sort of a Brokeback Mountain thing where mostly rural, if memory serves, white men have sex with other men regularly, but completely identify as straight and just think it's nuts they're gay. When left, uh, I, I figured bud sex. I figured it was a daisy chain thing. <laughs> when <laughs> when like weirdo communists on the internet first got mad at me. One of the things they did was like post screenshots of my articles about it. Like that was inherently funny, suggesting I was gay. It's like, wow, that's that's super progressive to be like, LOL, you're gay because you wrote about a gay subculture. So I think there is a lot of like... Drew Doyle, one of them? Well, Drew Doyle did a version of that later on. God bless Drew Doyle. Uh, I think there is a lot of latent homophobia and misogyny that comes out when people get cruel online. Yeah, totally. Yesterday, uh, I got a message from this guy, Max Nordeau, who has... He's a very vocal critic of, of Rebecca Jones. He's found a bunch of her alt accounts and her sock puppet accounts. And he told me that Jones also, here's another recent tweet of hers. At least my old trolls and those still here to keep us from the stalker brigade made up crazy shit to keep us entertained. Hell, at one point, Christina Pushaw started telling people I slept with DeSantis, Chris Cuomo, and Andrew Cuomo, two at the same time. Okay, Christina Pushaw is Ron DeSantis's press secretary. So she's saying that Ron DeSantis's press secretary told people that Rebecca Jones Slept with the Como brothers and Ron DeSantis. So the backstory behind this, according to Max, and he has so far his like his his theories, he's had the goods when it comes to Rebecca Jones. He says the real story behind this is that one of Jones' fake identities is Taylor Green, where she pretended to be her own former student. So she pretended to be Rebecca Jones pretended to be a former Re- Rebecca Jones student named Taylor Green, and under the, the alias Taylor Green, she claimed that Joan slept with Ron DeSantis. Under her own fake account. Yes. For some reason that uh, the thing about gay... <laughs> Wait, <laughs> sorry. The rumor was... The the fake rumor that Jones claimed was spread about her right. was about a du- being double teamed by the Cuomo <laughs> brothers. Yes, yes. Do you remember... That's a daisy remember... chain. We have finally figured out what a daisy chain is. Do you remember Chuck Tingle? No. Oh my God. Okay, just go to just Google Chuck Tingle. Go to his Amazon. Am I gonna get on a list for this? The name itself is very creepy. No, it's just funny. 
Okay, Chuck Tingle. I see he's an author. Wow. Okay, here's the name of one of his books. Living inside my own butt for eight years, starting a business and turning a profit through... Wait, never mind. <laughs> That's the name of the book? <laughs> Living... Well, it, this isn't going to work because I haven't explained the... Pro- okay, I'll just read this. Living inside my own butt for eight years, starting a business and turning a profit through common sense reinvestment and strategic targeted marketing. What the fuck? But he, okay, he got famous by with a series of books called Pounded in the Butt by Blank. So the problem is I can't find these because he appears to publish a book every other day. Pounded in the Butt by the Unexpected Power of Raw Sincerity. (laughs) (laughs) I have no butt, but I must pound, which is a takeoff of a famous sci-fi story. (laughs) Planes, trains, and automobile butt. (laughs) I see that he, according to his Wikipedia, he has won, he has been nominated for Hugo Awards more than once. He also went to DeVry University. The Sun and the Moon Bang Me Bisexually by Chuck Tingle. (laughs) Okay, please explain to me what this has to do with Rebecca Jones being a fucking liar. This is such a pointless story. I just imagine pounded in the butt by the Cuomo brothers as a Chuck Uh, yes. Okay. So another Rebecca Jones update. She at one point, I don't think this was recent, but at one point she tweeted that Marjorie Taylor Greene is not the first trans woman to be elected to office as a Republican. First of all, you mispronounce it. It's Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> oh, is it? It's yeah. Marjorie? Marjorie. Uh, that's now canon because it's, it's not the first. Rebecca Jones called Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yes. Trans. trans. And said that she wasn't the first trans woman to be elected to office as a Republican. Can I be a dick for one minute, just for once? I, do, I wouldn't usually do this Please on the do. show. Please do. We got a, a very earnest email from someone we know who is a staffer at a national publication. I'm not going to- Someone s- you know. I've met him. Yeah. Well, you like knew who he was, right? No, I never heard of him. Well, we don't need, we don't need to be a dick about it. Okay. Wait. Like, <laughs> I had never heard he's, of him. He writes for a national publication. Anyway, we got a very earnest email from him recently saying he was unsubscribing because we've been unfair to Rebecca Jones, which was – it wasn't a frothy, unhinged email or anything, but it's just of all the things we've said right. and all the hills we've just gotten riddled with bullets on – that's bizarre. That that's too far. They they criticize the fraudulent woman who lies about everything. Okay, but also he has written positively about Rebecca Jones. Yeah. So yeah. like it's a little, a little bit of conflict I mean, of interest, right? Can can I just reveal one uh, bit from an update to that? Please do. Okay, so after he wrote this email, he said, "Please consider this a private correspondence." No. <laughs> um. <laughs> no. Request denied. I didn't respond. He sent that. September 14th. It was a while ago. Yesterday, I I did reply. I was just like, out of curiosity, does this change your view of Jones at all? And I included a screenshot of her breaking Matt Gates, blah, 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 gay. Um, The first two sentences of his response. Remember, I asked if this changes his view of her. No, not really. I think (laughs) I think she is less honest than I would like, but more honest (laughs) than her detractors would admit. What is she even honest about? I think she is less honest than I would like is such a good (laughs) euphemism for being a fucking liar. Man, it is like the fact that it is not common knowledge that she is a fucking grifter 
and a serial liar. She's not a grifter. She's less honest than I would yeah, like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, this woman raised three hundred over $300,000 from people who listened to people like this reporter and NPR stories about how she was a fucking brave whistleblower taking on the DeSantis administration. This, she is a yeah. fucking liar. You this cannot is, believe a word that this woman says. This is a brief email our boy sent us, but the, la- the last sentence will last two sentences. And if we're going to talk dishonest grifters, where is your hard-hitting DeSantis episode? <laughs> Parentheses. Forgive me if you've done it. I have not listened to any podcast at all in the last six months. That was episode 137. Yes, there was a huge... Uh, there's not been enough. I mean, first of all, we have talked about the Don't Say Gay Law and how we're against yeah. it. Second of all, yes, there's a huge gap in the discourse. Not enough people are talking about Ron DeSantis. We definitely need more podcasters talking about Ron DeSantis. Super interesting. Yes, yes. That's what this podcast needs to do. Well, after that, why don't we do like three or four episodes on Donald Trump? I think she is less honest than I would like, but more honest than her detractors would admit. So we just haven't given her enough honesty points. Anyway, that's Rebecca Jones. She's a fucking fraud, and it's crazy she still has anyone uh, supporting her. It's a bad sign about the... You know, the cred- credulousness standards going on on uh, what's left of resistance Twitter, the small subset of it that hasn't fled to Mastodon screaming. <laughs> exactly. All right. Do we have any more updates? No, that was already way too much. Um, but hey, now you know who Chuck Tingle is. So yeah, thank God for that. All right, Katie, we've never before talked about trans youth stuff on this show. Should we make a one time exception? Just this one. Okay. So there's a recent article that got a lot of uh, attention. Big reported piece in The Times. When students change gender identity and parents don't know, subhead educators are facing wrenching new tensions over whether they should tell parents when students socially transition at school. Uh, it's by Katie J.M. Baker. I recognize the name because she's an established and well-respected reporter. But you know what I did not realize at first, Katie, was that she was the author of an article in Lux magazine called The Road to Turf Dumb. Interesting. That made a lot of gender-critical types mad in 2021. Do you remember that article? Uh, no. I'll just read the headline, The Road to Turf Dumb, subhead, Mumsnet and the Fostering of Anti-Trans Radicalization. Oh, I do remember um, this one. Yeah. I've only read two paragraphs of this because I, I do respect Katie J.M. Baker as a reporter. We'll get to that. But I'm not I'm not paying for an article with that starts this way. Um, it's part of a genre of article that suggests that there's been this sudden uptick in transphobia in the UK, and no one can explain why. There's no other explanation, but it's just moms are getting radicalized by Mumsnet, um, and you know I'm sure there are people who become conspiracy theorists online, but I feel like that account sort of leaves out the fact that like there was an actual policy battle in the UK about reforming the Gender Recognition Act. And that would have made um, England and Wales, I guess would apply to have one of the most liberal systems in the world for self-ID. And people were against that and reacted to that. This article in the Times is very different. It's like sort of a 180 away from that style of, of approaching this issue. Um, I wonder what happened. Yeah, I'm curious about that too. I, a lot, a couple people reached out to me about that. Um, I, you know what I bet happened? I bet she got radicalized on Mumsnet. <laughs> in the course of trying to observe <laughs> it and report on it, she was like, these horrific lesbian turfs make some really good points. <laughs> I like their knitwear. Um, her piece in the Times, I think, like was there's been a trend of outlets like the Times and the Washington Post starting to take this issue, these issues, a little bit more seriously and journalistically. I think this is a good example of that. I have some quibbles with it, but overall, it it pointed out that like 
This question of how much autonomy kids should have is complicated. Uh, The story centers on situations where schools hide from parents the fact that they've helped their kids socially transition. And sort of the biggest, most attention-getting story she focuses on is about a kid who um, was 15, had a bunch of other mental health problems, including PTSD and ADHD, was autistic, had already cycled through multiple names and sexual orientations during the pandemic, they just, uh, he decided he was trans and his school helped him socially transition and his parents only found out accidentally. Um, so the parents were pissed. And a lot of these stories have been percolating in the back channels because this is going on a lot of schools. A lot of schools have the basic policy that as soon as a kid says, my parents don't accept me, the school says, okay, well, you're safe here. We'll help you transition in secret. Um What's your like overall take on that policy? I think it's kind of insane. Like, but it also it's complicated because it depends on the way that you look at transition and what the like what transition fundamentally is. And if you believe, as I do, that people who transition are and should be people who suffer from gender dysphoria, it's a medical diagnosis. And so, if you look at it that way. The question really is, should schools withhold a medical issue from parents? And the answer to that question is obviously no, (laughs) they should not. But if you look at it as an identity and not a medical condition, which is what I think a lot of... I guess if we're being more precise, it's like technically a psychiatric issue. It's in the DSM. Right. And But if you look at it as an identity and not as a medical condition, which is what I think the trend is right now, there's this idea that you don't even need to have gender dysphoria to transition. It is purely an identity, not a medical condition or a psychological condition. Then it gets a little bit more complicated. And the most obvious parallel there is homosexuality, which is also an identity. I don't actually think that that's a good comparison. People make it all the time. I don't think it's a good one because being gay and being trans are fundamentally different things. The former doesn't include medical interventions unless you unless you count like going to the gym to be a medical intervention. <laughs> well, but this, in many cases, this won't either, at least not at first. This is just a social... Not at first, except that we also know that people who are affirmed and who go through social transitions do tend, not even... Like, there's studies on this. What Do you know what the exact number is? No, and and it's just hard to... Generally speaking, there's a case to be made. Well, we know more about pre-pubertal kids. We know nothing about adolescent onset GD kids. Um, There's a case to be made that Kids who are affirmed, yes, you're a boy, yes, you're a girl, and socially transition quickly in youth, as youth, um, are less likely to desist. This whole conversation is a clusterfuck for so many reasons. One of them is that uh, activists have been very effective at pretending that we don't know um, from a number of studies that kids tend to – a lot of kids change their mind. Kids who think they're trans at a young age – especially at younger ages, often tend to change their mind. There's been a pretty vehement effort to make sure that we don't point that out and to pretend that the research is so bad and flawed we don't know that with some degree of certainty. So that's one of my gripes with Baker's article is like if if we're approaching this from a scientific perspective, we should point out like a lot of kids who think they're trans at one point at, at some point won't. So – and they're less likely to desist if they are, for instance, change their name, if they are, yes, affirmed. Maybe. I, I, I think that's like uh, compatible with the data we have. No one's really – there's no like clear study on that 
question. But I think like, especially for like really young kids. Yeah. I think, I think it was reasonable to think that if you quickly tell them, yeah, the way you feel is just, you're a boy on the inside, you're a girl on the inside. They're probably less likely to desist and then more likely to need medicalization. I, I wouldn't say that with complete certainty, but I think that's a reasonable theory. Yeah. And, and for trans activists and allies, I think the question then would be, so what? Is there anything worse about being trans than being not trans? And I think the answer is yes. I'm sorry to say this because <laughs> when you're talking about medical interventions, there are side effects with these treatments. It is it is it better for people not to have to be on medication for their entire lives? Yes. Of course. It's crazy that anyone and especially with blockers and right. hormones where serious side we effects. Have, we have no good data on on like what happens to you if if you have decades of exogenous hormones starting at age fourteen? And we there's the the science isn't even closed on like whether puberty blockers in this use case are totally safe. So uh, we should err on the side of caution on them, but that's not the current narrative. Well, another reason I think that this comparison is flawed, the comparison being you know teachers outing gay kids to their parents, is that. It's not a neutral act, right? It's proactive. You're talking about changing their names, changing what bathrooms they go to. It's enabling. And so I think it's a bad comparison because while I wouldn't want teachers to out gay kids to their parents, I also wouldn't want teachers to, say, set gay kids up on dates or proactively get involved in their romantic lives in other ways. I think that is the that is the, the more apt comparison. You're talk- It's not a neutral act. It's not just you have this you have this knowledge and you don't take it to the take it to the parent or whatever it's you're you're affirming them you're you're doing something active there's this belief that there's a large number of truly abusive parents who would react horribly if their kids came out as trans and i think there's some of them i also think that the I, the idea of taking an 11 or 12 or 13 year old at face value and just letting them decide something like this is not realistic and i was very surprised at the number of weirdos on Twitter who really just think 12-year-olds are just like little adults who should have full autonomy. I think that's a crazy viewpoint. Um, right. You know, the counterpoint is like this is social transition. It's it's just names, just pronouns. But I, I wrote about this in my newsletter. It's free. I'll include a link. You know, even WPATH, which some people think is too far to the left on these issues. Why don't you explain what yeah, that is? Yeah, the World Professional Association for Transgender Healthcare. They put out the standards of care that are sort of the Bible for clinicians working with trans people, um, there's all sorts of controversy there. But even they are like, uh, you know, they they uh, say social transition should be thought through carefully, and and the pros and cons should be discussed with parents. They're also very clear that kids with autism and other mental health problems, the diagnostic process is much clearer, um, less clear. So, I would go back to what you said earlier, where. Modi Gorin, who's a philosopher I like, who's written a bit about this stuff, pointed out that we're now so conceptually confused about what we're doing or what it even means to be trans. So if a kid is transitioning just because they like want to transition and they don't have gender dysphoria, why is it that important for a school to facilitate that and to keep it from parents? If a school is transitioning a kid because they do have gender dysphoria – you're going to hide from parents the fact that their kid has, whether or not it should be in the DSM, has a condition that is in the DSM that's correlated with negative mental health. I just, I don't, I think there's such fuzziness here. And it, it like, even just like the definition of being trans is so broad. It's like you're transitioning a kid just, I, I, I wish there was at least agreement on like why and under what circumstances uh, kids should socially transition, which there actually really isn't. Yeah. I mean, 
I don't see how this can be psychologically good for kids as well to be living double lives. Makes no sense. And to foster cutting their parents out of the process of not like I understand if there's if their parents are truly abusive, that's one thing. But this is encouraging them to view their parents as not part of the process of helping them figure out gender stuff, which which if you interview clinicians, a huge part of this process is getting parents like on the same page as kids. And there's often conflict there that's normal and needs to be resolved. But to have teachers or, or I don't know, a social worker or school nurse drive that wedge. It's just, it's, I found it bizarre that so many people on Twitter did not see any potential issues with this. And some of the teachers who were quoted in this piece, like there was a teacher who said something like, if your parents don't support you, I'm your mom now. That's fucking. Yeah. Another teacher said that her job was to protect students. No, your job is to teach history. That's your job. Yeah. Your job isn't to get involved in, in students' personal lives. <laughs> I mean, but what do you think should happen in cases where a kid wants to socially transition and their parents are genuinely abusive? If the parent is abusive, the school should be involved by, yes, calling CPS or something, helping the kid find counseling. But I think that should just be standard across the board. If a parent is abusive, you help the child out. Of course. But, you have to. I mean, right. the mandated reporters, if there's a sign of actual abuse. Right. But there has to be actual abuse. And do we think that kids are going to or the definition of abuse has creep because not affirming someone's preferred gender is now abusive. I mean, abuse can be a very muddy term. There are activists who genuinely think that, um, and will say so, that if you don't affirm a little kid, a seven or eight year old, child protective services should be involved. Yeah. And that is, and there have been cases, I don't know that much about them. There have been cases where that has happened. And this is going to be something that has to be a conversation uh, because, um, this idea that you're an otherwise nurturing and caring parent and you just are skeptical about your kids socially transitioning and therefore you're a monster. Uh, I don't know about that. And I saw a number of like writers writing under their own name, referring to the parents in this story, in the Baker story as abusive, um, as transphobes. And, and, and this included some parent, there were some parents in the story who were supportive of their kids and the school still hadn't told them. Including, they, well, this was, I pointed this out in my newsletter, this autistic 15 year old. Transition. Yeah, her parents found out and his. he socially transitioned. His parents yeah. found out and he socially transitioned. And now his parents are skeptical because he also, of course, wants a double mastectomy and right. hormones because of course he does. And they're skeptical of that because they're decent parents. What, what parent right. would be like, you're in the midst of multiple mental health problems. There's a pandemic. You've cycled through multiple identities. Okay, you want hormones? Let's get you hormones next Let's week. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, so, but this is an example where what the kid, whatever, however he expressed it to his teachers, and I'm not sure it's laid out in the story, he was wrong. His parents were not going to kick him out of the house or abuse him. Um, so, I just think like letting the parents decide. Also, this might be a weird analogy, you know, but this reminded me a little bit of and bear with me, it's going to sound weird, colleges and rape and Title IX. So How's that? Colleges set up this Title IX infrastructure, and you can have a student, usually male, who is not accused of rape in the formal sense, like by police. Police are not involved, but there's an apparatus on campus to effectively do like a mini pseudo trial for rape that can have serious repercussions, albeit not prison. And it's just all these questions arise of are schools qualified to investigate a rape without the tools of law enforcement? This seems like it's a situation where where schools are like pseudo accusing parents of some form of abuse and acting accordingly, but it's a completely opaque process. I guess I guess. <laughs> 
And it's just, I, I, no, I, I think it, I think it sort of works because like, it's just, is a university equipped to right. pseudo investigate right. a rape? Is a school equipped to pseudo investigate abusive child abuse practices, but without actually interviewing the parents or investigating or anything? Right. Okay. Okay. All right. Your, your yes. metaphor stands. Okay. Sweet. One thing I did appreciate about this article was that she spelled out that these parents that she interviewed, most of them, not all, but most of them weren't conservative. They don't, they're not transphobic. Not that conservatives are inherently transphobic, but they don't have moral objection to transition. What they object to is their kids doing it in this case, oftentimes because, as you said, their kids have comorbidities, other mental health issues. And also that these parents don't really have anywhere to turn except to conservatives. Like she talked about a number of parents who are involved in lawsuits, Erica Anderson, who's been on this show, who's a trans woman and a clinician who objects to the fast tracking of kids through transition. She has, she wrote a brief or something for, uh, for, what did she do actually? Like a conservative organization. Um, yeah. yeah, it was interesting. And she said she felt conflicted about that. Yeah. Because these people don't have anywhere to turn to because liberals won't touch this for the most part. I did have a few quibbles with the piece. I thought she should have spelled out a little bit a little bit more directly that there's plenty of at least anecdotal evidence that there's a social contagion going on. Um, and, uh, and <laughs> so that, I think she at least refer, I think she at least referenced it, right? Or no? Yeah. I think it should have been pretty, I think it, I think it needs yeah. to be spelled out. I think the word social contagion should be used. Um, Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Sachs, who's been on the show before as well. He had what I also thought was a interesting criticism. He pointed out that there are bills in conservative states that would prevent schools from affirming a kid's new identity, cross-sex identity, or non-binary identity, maybe even if the parents are on yeah, board. Which is crazy. So if you are... That's the same problem in the other direction, where you're like creating a fractured identity. Right. Yeah, people are very incoherent about like this idea of what is... Um, uh, beneficial acts on the part of schools or benevolent acts versus what is interference. It's really just like whatever acts I like. Did you, uh, did you see Michelle Goldberg's column on this? Yes. So, um, Michelle Goldberg wrote a column headline, trans kids deserve private lives too. Uh, Goldberg is very smart. So like she, if you disagree with her, you're probably getting one of the, you know, best versions of whatever the disagreement is. I'll just, I'll read it. And, and she also, she wrote one of the first, maybe the first, article in the mainstream press about the tension between feminism and and transition in the New Yorker in like 2015. Yeah. And as we'll we'll get to, some people have still not forgiven her for that. I'll just Mm -hmm. read a little bit about this. Um, At the top, she's talking about the parent of that trans 15-year-old with autism and the other conditions who found out that um, his kids, her kid's school had transitioned the kid. Her distress is understandable. I would be flabbergasted and frankly hurt if one of my kids took such a big step without my knowledge. Nonetheless, the more I think about it, the more I'm convinced that the school did the right thing. Teenagers deserve a measure of privacy and autonomy to work out their identities, gender or otherwise, even if some of their choices and decisions seem like bad ideas to the adults in their lives. Right now, through both lawsuits and state laws, so-called parents' rights advocates are trying to ensure that schools inform families about changes to their children's gender identities. The most immediate victims of such policies are trans kids who lack supportive families and who stand to lose a place where they can safely be themselves outside of their homes. But all adolescents should have space, independent of their parents, to experiment with identity in reversible, non-medical ways. Such policies can also put absurd burdens on school officials. As far as I know, teachers don't notify parents about whom their kids are dating. If the daughter of a conservative Muslim family decided to take off or her job at school, most of us wouldn't expect her teacher reporter. Um, I, I, I made a similar analogy in my Substack piece where I actually, I agree that 
if a kid wants to wear a dress at school, that shouldn't be reported to parents. If they act in a gender nonconforming way or if they act too religious or not religious enough, all that stuff I think should be private. I just do think a full social transition is a type of intervention and that that's different from mm-hmm. the other examples. Does that make sense to you? It does. And also there's a difference, I think, between infor- like a, a school can inform a kid, uh, inform parents and still go ahead and call the kid the name that they want to be called. You're saying just don't keep it a secret. Go ahead with the transition. Tell them. Yeah. 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 I'm not saying that that's the best policy, but I'm saying that it doesn't have to be one or the other. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess it really, again, it comes down to whether you view social transition as like an intervention or just the equivalent of like trying a different hairstyle or trying different religious beliefs. Um, so I'm I'm mostly with Goldberg. I just think that's what we disagree with. I also, again, Baker and Goldberg and others, I wish they did be a little bit clearer about the difference between a kid who you can you can try to figure out if a kid has gender dysphoria. Like you can attempt to see if there's a diagnosis there. And to me, that's mm-hmm. this idea of lumping in all these different forms of transness makes this complication a lot more difficult. Because we know examples of people who who are trans who have no gender dysphoria and who actually barely change their presentation at all. And I think there it's it's harder to make a case that like this is an urgent need that they that you're depriving them of something if they have to wait till they get a little bit older or something. Right. Right. All right. I guess that's all I had on that. I'll include a link to a weird Instagram video Chase Strangio posted that is just such a 2023 artifact because Chase Strangio agrees with Michelle Goldberg on this, but there's like old beef over the New York article. So Chase does this bizarre Instagram video and the criticisms include the fact that the New York Times posted a photo. The photo was of a kid's back instead of their front. Do you even <laughs> understand what the criticism is? I don't know. I guess posting photos of children online is good now. <laughs> I, I I find this so strange, this thing where folks like Chase Strangio, who have very big platforms, act like us, like Twitter-addled losers. And they, there's just no professionalism. There's ne- They never miss an opportunity to pick fights with people. But how does that help the ACLU to have someone attack, in a very slightly unhinged way, attack a New York Times columnist for printing what the ACLU, the view they want to prevail, it's just, it's very weird. Folks should watch the video. I mean, the thing to do after the New York Times or any mainstream outlet publishes a piece that is even slightly nuanced on this issue is check in with Chase Strangio and see how he's taking it. And the answer is always personally. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not great. All right, Katie, should we do housekeeping? Let's do it. All right, we're Blockchain Reported. We're a podcast. If you go to blockchainreported.org, you can join our premium subscription service. You can become our primo. It's legally binding. You will be our cousin because that's cousin in Spanish. Once, And then we can share blood. We will share so, so, so much blood, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you will get three extra episodes a month. You will join a community of more than 10,000 people. There's weekly discussion threads. There's other perks. There is. It looks like there's going to be a party in mid-February in San Francisco. I'm close to finalizing that. I hope I can, although no guarantees just yet. That is only going to be open. Should I fly in for it? Uh, I, I'd prefer you didn't. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to fly this in. This is my day, I'm going to have a competing party next to your party. <laughs> we'll see who gets more. Um, this The party will only be open to premium subscribers. It's a benefit for the subscribers. Uh, we also have a Reddit, subreddit, administered by Soft and Chewy, blockedandreported.reddit.com. Oh, we had, there's an unofficial Discord, and I need to read something from that. Okay, so I played Quiplash last weekend um, for charity with some folks on the Discord chat. My cousin, Alon. What was the charity? Well, we'll get to that. 
My cousin Alan Altman. I was playing for Givewell. Everyone got to play for their own charity. So I think someone was playing for Hezbollah, someone for the American family, and you know, mostly far right causes. Uh, I was joined by my cousin Alan Altman, a very talented stand up comedian um, who did better than I did, I think. Um, the winner was not me. Uh, here's the email we got from the winner because I said I'd give him a shout out. Hello, Jesse. This is the 23-year-old black male who's teaching in Japan who quid wi- played Quiplash under the name Not Him. I cheekily asked if I could get to have a shout out on the podcast for winning and told me to email you so you won't forget. I was going to say don't use my real name in the shout out, but recently a gay porn star who shares my name has gotten quite big. Sean Ford. He's a white <laughs> twink. So I really don't care about getting docs or whatever. Maybe you can share with Katie the quiplash I got with the prompt. Quiplash is like, you did really well. Everyone liked your answer. What's a sign that you would never be a professional football player? Sean's answer was, you're Chinese. (laughs) Beating out, Katie is your professional manager. I wonder which of those Katie would pick. He's allowed to make that joke because he teaches in Japan. I've decreed it. Thanks again for making me donate to a charity in 2023. That shot. Wait, Ford. he can make that joke because he can make a joke about Chinese people because he teaches yeah, in Japan. Yeah, he's black okay. and he's teaching. Okay. Yeah, he's right. yeah. Between you do There's the intersection. I did the intersection. Layers now. on layers of racism here. Congratulations to Sean Ford for winning the Quiplash charity thing. I think he just said he would give to whatever charity I pick. So give well, we'll get the money. Um, well, Sean Ford, congratulations, and everybody go check out his films. Yeah, the, the white twink. See, I feel bad, but I think he just said give well. I'll update that next episode if I can't, if I got that wrong. Um, anything else, Katie? I think that's... Oh, merch. Barpodmerch.com. Org or com? Uh, com. I think, I think now it's com. com. Before it was org, now it's com. You got your... I'm looking at it now. You got pervert for nuance. Barpodmerch.com. Park Slope Panthers. Blocked reported hoodie, hoodies, mugs, um, and totes. So all that good stuff. Okay. Katie, moving on from gender to gender, you have a story to tell me. Yes, I do have a story for you, Jesse. And this one starts at the Music Box Theater in Chicago, which recently canceled a scheduled screening of an indie film it's called Actors over allegations that the film is trans. You said indie, indie film? Yeah, indie, indie film. Okay. It means independent. Never heard it. Anyway, continue. Uh, the film is called Actors, and the allegations are that the film is transphobic, and the filmmaker herself, her name is Betsy Brown, is a fascist. Uh, this was first reported by Ryan Zagraf of the in the Chicago Sun-Times, and it really does not appear to have been reported anywhere else. Zagraf doesn't live in Chicago. He used to live in Chicago, and it appears that he's the only person inside or outside of Chicago who is actually willing to report on this cancellation. But it is an interesting one, and it has many layers and intersects with the hipster enclave in New York called Dime Square and the, quote, downtown scene. All will be revealed shortly. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. We're, I, we're getting into yeah, this. Yeah, we're getting into it. Okay, but before we do, <sighs> let's talk about the movie. So Actors was created by this New York-based filmmaker, Betsy Brown. It stars Brown as well as her brother, Peter Vack. Uh, they play struggling actors and filmmakers, which is basically what they are. They also go through their go under their own names in the film. It's very meta. So Brown has been in a small handful of indie films. She's the lead in Dasha Nekrasova's horror film, The Scary of 61st, which is about two young women who rent Jeffrey Epstein's old apartment. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. If there was going to be a Red Scare movie, that sounds about right. Yes. Yes. 
Vac, Peter, he's the more successful sibling, both in in the film and in real life. He's had supporting roles in shows like The Bull Type, Homeland, Mozart in the Jungle, HBO's Love Life, which I really liked but was canceled after a couple seasons. He's probably not someone you would recognize, or he's maybe someone that you would recognize and be like, I've seen that guy somewhere, but I don't know where. He's a working actor, but he's not a household name. And in this film, he basically plays a more terrible version of himself, that is a struggling actor who decides to come out as a trans woman named Petra in order to advance his career. Yeah. So as you can imagine, this causes some tension with his sister, Betsy, who is also an actor. She knows that he's faking it and isn't really thrilled when he starts auditioning for the same roles that she's auditioning for and actually getting them. And the sister, Betsy, she's basically playing a more terrible version of herself, too. She then decides to get pregnant as an art project. So it's about these two siblings transforming their bodies for art and how society responds to each one. Basically, one of them is lauded for this brave transformation and the other one is ignored. And you can probably guess which is which. Yeah. Uh, So, Jesse, did you watch this? Here's the thing, Katie. (laughs) (laughs) I can't remember. It's been a long week. Yeah. I I do remember... There were multiple emails emails and texts (laughs) where you said, could you watch this so we could talk about it? I definitely remember that. After that, things get a bit fuzzy. I got really upset about some stuff on Twitter. There were the pigeons. Uh I uh may have forgotten to watch it and then called you two seconds before, two minutes before (laughs) we recorded today saying I'm an asshole. Um, And uh, yeah, I apologize. It's fine. Okay, I want to preface this by saying that I have extremely lowbrow taste in movies. I don't like weird shit. Like, Top Gun is too avant-garde for me. I would honestly rather watch a 600-pound man taking a shit and eating pizza at the same time than I would watch an art film, which is why I saw The Whale six times. <laughs> I do not like weird I was shit. Say that is an art film. <laughs> it is, like, I'm just not the audience for this thing because... Actors has everything that I don't like about movies, like it's low budget, lo-fi production values, there's weird lighting, there's kissing noises. It is just not for me. But I did think the storyline was very interesting. And of course, part of that is because it gets to this fundamental truth about the moment we're in right now, which is that in certain subcultures, there is a benefit to being part of a historically oppressed identity group. And so it is certainly possible that a certain type of narcissist, for instance, would, for instance, fake being trans for clout, right? I mean, we've seen this in plenty of other contexts. It's just this is the one where you're not really allowed to question it. Right. It is okay to question the white woman who transitions into an Indian or Rachel Dolezal or whatever, but you add two spirit onto that and it's, it's, don't question it. Okay. So the film was actually written in 2017. So Betsy Brown was certainly not thinking about this when she made it, but I really couldn't help but think about Dylan Mulvaney when I was watching this. Do you know who Dylan Mulvaney is? He's a trans influencer on like TikTok and stuff, right? She, but yeah, so Dylan Mulvaney was basically a struggling actor as a male, came out as trans, and now has 10 million followers on TikTok, went to the White House, and just today revealed her new face. Like, this is like a face-off Nicolas Cage type? Like, <laughs> Yes, that would be amazing. No, Dylan is trending right now because Dylan did their face reveal. Dylan just got facial feminization surgery, I will say. The face is amazing. I don't know how like brave it is to go get plastic surgery so you're hotter than you used to be. Katie, uh, it's very we know it's brave. Also brave. for facial feminization survey uh surgery, F 
FFS for fuck's sake. (laughs) Yeah. So I I did think about Dylan when I was saying this, not that I have any, I have no idea if Dylan's gender dysphoria is real or imagined, but I do know that it has been very good for Dylan's career to come out as a trans woman. I don't think. Is Dylan the one who's sort of like, is like 15 days of girlhood. Yeah. yeah. And it's like incredibly retrograde. Yes. It's like something you would not in any other situation. You'd imagine feminists like saying like, keep teenage girls away from this sort of thing. Yes. Dylan is the one who different because reasons. Right. Dylan is the one who has been like tracking Dylan's progress through transition and talks about themselves as a girl all the time. But now honestly with the, and like, is it's like sort of a jarring juxtaposition position because dylan had a very masculine face like didn't pass yeah now dylan passes really well the face is like i want the name of dylan surgeon i might get that same face it's it's much better so we'll see how that changes things. when's your birthday <laughs> it's may everybody do it do a go fund me <laughs> okay so i don't think that there's like a rash of men taking estrogen or getting implants as a career move but i do think that people adopt the queer the gender queer the non-binary identities for cloud all the time And so I appreciate that this is one of the few films that you're seeing exploring that possibility. And in the film, it just takes everything to a weird extreme, right? So I will not say that I particularly enjoyed watching the film, Too Many Kissing Noises, but I will say that I'm glad it exists. My wife likes arty films. She thought it was great. So I talked to Betsy for a good long while after I, I watched the film, and she told me that the idea for the film came to her after a number of guys, of her guy friends, this was in 2017, started talking to her about this anxiety that they had, that their own identities or their demographics as plain old white guys was holding them back in the arts. And the funny thing is that she's not particularly sympathetic to this argument. Like, here's what she told me. My feelings about this are actually kind of woke. And in the movie, the fragile white man, Peter, her brother Peter, is really the villain of the, fr- of the film. He's not a hero. He's faking it for, for a career move. And like yeah. that's very clear in the film. But even more fundamentally, the film is about jealousy and sibling rivalry. And the genesis for that storyline, so this was in 2017, Betsy played the role in her brother's film, Assholes, which also looks very avant-garde. I will not be seeing it. That film premiered at South by Southwest, and Betsy told me that when she was there, she was disappointed to find that no one really cared about her because at film that film festivals, it's really all about the filmmaker and nobody gives a shit about the actors. And her brother, Peter, he's older than her. He's been acting for longer. And so there is this element of jealousy there. But at South by Southwest, she started thinking about how much more psychologically damaging it would be for her if Peter wasn't her brother, but her sister, because there would be more of a direct comparison. And so that's where she got the idea for the film. What if Peter was my sister? She has got to be interesting. Yeah. She's very interesting. She, she, the film itself, like, her, it, there's so many layers to it. Like, it's, it's very meta. Her, their actual IRL parents are in the, in the film. There's lots of, it's very self-referential, talking about old projects and new projects. We'll get to that in a little bit. So she wrote the film, and even before the, even before she started making it, there was controversy. So she funded it via a forty thousand dollar Kickstarter campaign, and she told me that it was during the Kickstarter campaign that she said that was the first time an ally cried to me about it. So she knew this was going to be controversial, and you can see why, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, people. It's unfortunate that people, I think, have gotten less sophisticated about their ability to interpret art. What you described to me is like a satire of certain forces, and I That's don't think, is, yeah. based on what you've described, my response wouldn't be this is making fun of trans people. It's making fun of desperate, pathetic white men, exactly, and of like these certain dynamics, uh, misogyny and stuff. Exactly. That's my problem with the film. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> the one demographic you like. <laughs> the film was shot in 2018, edited during COVID in 2020, and then Betsy started submitting it to film festivals, and it was rejected by almost all of them. She told me that she got some nice personal rejections, and a number of bookers and programmers said basically, like, look, I love the movie, but we can't show this. It's just too controversial. Yeah. It was eventually accepted into two film festivals. It premiered at the Denver Film Festival in 2021, and it was also screened at the Kukaloris Film Festival in Wilmington, North Carolina. And Betsy told me that uh, during the Q&A at the screening at the Kukaloris Film Festival, it was very confrontational, and the audience seemed split with people who loved it and people who hated it. So Betsy told me that afterwards, she ended up talking with a bunch of trans people who hated it. They stayed up all night talking. And at the end of this, she said, like, they may not like the movie, but she felt like they came to some sort of understanding about what she was trying to do. And this was refreshing for her because more of what she experienced was people disparaging the film when they hadn't seen it or trying to get it deplatformed, but also refusing to actually engage with her. Okay, so besides those two screenings, Actors was rejected basically everywhere. And then Betsy sent the film to a, a film podcast called Ion Pack. Do you know about Ion Pack? Yeah, well, I, I heard of them by reading about Dime Square. Okay, yeah. Okay, so now this is where we have to pivot to talking about Dime Square and the uh, downtown scene. Jesse, have you ever been to Dime Square? I imagine they don't let your kind in. I'm sure I've walked through there without knowing what it is. I think it's a neighborhood in Chinatown, right? Like by Canal Street? Yeah, it's in Chinatown. It's it's small, apparently. Betsy told me that there's like a restaurant and then a couple of... There's like three eateries and a few bars in this little area in Chinatown. It, this is just like where the, the very young hipsters hang out and there's like an air of transgressiveness to it and there's an air of... Um, backlash against social justice stuff and there's a lot of Catholicism and I don't know how much of yeah. it's ironic and their Dasha and Anna of Red Scare are sort of like I don't know I mean they're not like I, I, I want to say dead mothers I'm not meaning to imply they're like super old but they are significantly older than the kids who they're, they, they're like they're like sort of heroes to a lot of I think the Dime Square kids there's all these like parties and, and art events and I've been to none of it but I just keep brushing up against on it both online and like I occasionally see some people who are adjacent to it. Yeah, it's basically a hipster art scene. And of course, because I am a, hum a humble country podcaster, I have never heard of any of the, the people it's affiliated with. Oh, wait. Hey, I forgot about the fascism. There's oh, yeah. also like maybe some fascism there, but it's unclear if that's ironic. Yeah. The Catholicism and the fascism, it's unclear... It, they're like flirt with like these transgressive ideologies. Right. Like it's definitely more based than cringe. It's socially acceptable and even maybe encouraged to call people things like retarded and gay. And because it's very edgy and transgressive, it's sort of the opposite of the like earnest woke SJW who would have worn a pussy hat before realizing that pussy hats are problematic actually. And now puts they, them in their pronouns and talks about menstruators. Right. So it's, it's more based than cringe. We'll put some some additional reading in the uh, in the show notes if anybody is is interested in this. Yeah, I think um an absolute must read if you want to understand the scene is Joe Bernstein's article. Uh, Look at what we're doing with your money, you dick. How Peter Thiel backed an anti-woke film festival. Don't ignore that line. Just read the piece. It's an insane piece of journalism with like a very tragic figure at its center. Okay, so Ion Pack, this is a film podcast. It's part of that scene. And Ion Pack started as an anonymous Instagram account, and then it became a podcast. And until, tw until 2022, it was anonymous with the two guys who run it wearing these masks over their faces like Kanye wore on Alex Jones. So Betsy sent her film to Ion Pack. They loved it. They got it screened. 
at the Roxy Cinema. So Betsy says that. Is the, that just a dime in Dime Square? I, I don't know. No, that's. Uh, I don't fucking know. You're you're in New York. Not really. I don't. I'm not cool. Uh, so Betsy says that the film sold out and it was a great night. And so the Roxy screened it five more times each time it sold out, which led to her getting invited to more one night only screenings at various cinemas, which was what the show at music city in Chicago was supposed to be until it was canceled. Okay. So what led to the cancellation? Well, what happened is that people started tweeting and emailing the theater demanding that they cancel it. Specifically, a trans filmmaker named Jane Schoenbraun tweeted, This movie is transphobic and reeks of violence. I pulled my film from fests that were playing it. Hey, Music Box Theater, this is a bad look. And then emoji. Tagging them in at Music yeah. Box Theater. And, yeah. and a frowning. One note about this. So Betsy told me that Jane did pull her film from the Kukaloris Film Festival but that's a very small film festival in a small city in North Carolina. Jane did not pull her film from the much larger Denver Film Festival, which is where actors premiered. Take take from that what you will. Yeah. So Jane's tweet included an email. It was a quote tweet of an email that another Chicago filmmaker sent to the music box that basically outlined why actors should be canceled. I'm going to read you part of it. Peter Vatt clearly doesn't care about trans people, given his encouragement to a crowd of fans in a movie he directed last summer to, tr- to shout anti-trans slurs at those present. Betsy Brown has said on the Ion Pack podcast that the movie you were showing, Actors, is a reaction to Me Too and white actors being overlooked for gigs in the city. I bring this up because it's clear that they are simply insecure white fascists who made a movie at trans people's expense. Okay, so Jane's tweet doesn't get a ton of engagement. As of now, it has under 400 likes and a few dozen retweets. But soon after this tweet goes up, people start noticing that Actors is no longer listed on the Music Box's website. And then Betsy got an email from the programmer at the venue being like, hey, we need to talk. And then when they did talk, the programmer told her that that they got a bunch of angry emails from people calling the film transphobic and even worse saying that she is personally fascist where did that come from the idea that she's fascist okay so you can see why people would call this transphobic right like i don't actually think the movie was transphobic but of course my bar for those kind of things is pretty high because you're transphobic right and it's still not hard to see why a bunch of people who haven't seen this film would assume that it's transphobic the same thing happened in the in 2019 with the film adam did you see that one i did not Okay, so that one was about a teenage boy who gets involved in his older sister's queer scene. And when people assume that he's trans, he just goes along with it because he has a crush on a lesbian. That film was made by Reese Ernst, who is himself trans. And the message is hardly transphobic, but people still tried to get it canceled before they saw it. But fascism is a whole nother can of isms. And to get to where that allegation comes from, we have to return to Ion Pod and the downtown scene. I can't wait. Jesse, have you ever heard of a guy named Mike Crumpler? <laughs> yeah, Mike, uh, he wrote accidentally one of the other must-read things about like the Dime Square scene. We'll get to that in a minute. I'd never heard of him before this, but I like this explainer from Know Your Meme, so I'm going to read it to you. Oh, he goes by the name Crumps online. Crumps, Crumpta. <laughs> Crump- <The> Crumpulator. <laughs> Crumps first came to attention in online circles around 2018-2019 for his work on the Isla Vista mass shooter Elliot Rogers Manifesto, which he argued should be read seriously and required an informed critical approach. Crumps analyzed incels from a Freudo-Marxist perspective, arguing that the incel phenomenon expressed American society's troubles with race, class, and gender, and the concerns of incels should be read seriously as representing a real problem with modern society. Everyone knows 
that manifesto should be read from a Marxist Freudian perspective, <laughs> not a Freudian Marx. So this guy seems like a hack so far. Okay, so he wrote about incels, apparently with some degree of empathy, but then he he got too into it, I guess, and reconsidered his own involvement and in coverage of the incel scene. Here's how he put it in a blog post. The biggest problem with my writing was that in trying to make an original critique of the incels and frog Twitter and other reactionary tendencies, I had unconsciously internalized their values. Basically, a result of trying to tweet my way into a writing career. That's not very uh, honest, especially trying to tweet yeah. my way into a writing career. And Frog Twitter, I think people know, but it's like these online fascists or kids pretending to be fascists who use Pepe the Frog as their sort of avatar. Yeah. So he distances himself from the old stuff. He moves from D.C. to New York, starts writing critically about Dime Square and the downtown scene, and he's highly critical of it. And then there's a play called Dime Square, because of course there is. I don't know anything about it, but self-referential, of course. He writes a negative review of this. His review gets mocked on the Ion Pod podcast. He loves this and tweets about it. They love that he loves it. And so they invite him to a screening of Betsy Brown's movie Actors at the Roxy. I... This is like a, um, it's like a circle jerk where like there's too many arms totally. and they get tangled up and you can't tell like who's <laughs> grabbing whose dick. It's the rat king of circle jerks. <laughs> Jesus. So, okay. So he wrote about incels, got a little too in too deep, mm-hmm. uh, moved to New York, which when you need a spiritual purification, definitely move to New York and start hanging out with like white kids in Chinatown. Starts writing. My understanding is he he's not only writing about Times Square. He's like going to their parties and sort of doing it ethnographically, right? Right. Yes. But then he gives he gives a negative review to a play you're supposed to like. People get mad, but he goes on a podcast. He doesn't go on the podcast. To they he writes. The, I unpack. Oh, they invite him to a screen filming of of the movie yes. we're talking about. Right. Who dated Kevin Bacon? <laughs> Except Kevin Bacon <laughs> okay, is Dasha from Red Scare. Okay. So okay, he goes to the screening, and there's a Q&A. He meets Betsy and Peter. They have some awkward, nice interactions. He interviews Betsy, and then he goes on to write a scathing review of her film. Here's a taste of that review. My reaction was, well, one of genuine disgust and revulsion. I hate to say it, but the film really did appear to be just a very ignorant and mean-spirited satire of transness. With its ghost visual effects and editing, Peter Petra, uh, Petra is his trans character, Peter Petra's bombastic fake trans diva comes across like a Sam Heidian minstrel show character. Each important step of gender transition is prevented viscerally on screen as pure campy horror. The juxtaposition of Petra's successful gender rebram with Betsy's barren motherhood seems like it would come from those British turfs that hang out with J.K. Rowling. I gotta say, if they're making Peter... Again, I just think it's a misunderstanding of what art is. Like, if they're making Peter and Petra's transition seem grotesque, Aren't they making fun of Peter Petra? I mean, I haven't seen the movie. Yes. I just don't I don't understand this kind of analysis. Anyway, continue. Yes, but I think he doesn't believe that that's the intention. That that's what like, they're actually and, doing. Yeah. Right. Like and Betsy has stated over and over, like this is not a, this is not a satire of transness. This is a satire of white male fragility. It yeah. is woke, kind of. And just as a note, Sam Hyde and Minstrel Show. Sam Hyde, I'd never heard of him. He was an alt-right type comic. Okay, so that review was published on his Substack in April 22. Fast forward to August of that year. He publishes another piece on his Substack, and this piece is about what happened when he agreed to go to the filming of Peter Vack's next movie, his forthcoming film, www.racheldorman.com, which naturally stars Dasha and Ion Peck. Of course. And Betsy. Okay, so one thing to note about this is that the Betsy Brown film Actors is 
they're everything is so self-referential like there's a scene in actors and this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie where peter playing peter reads a negative review of his film assholes which is a film that peter and made in real life and it is oh a real God. negative review and the genesis what sorry rat gang like you're saying yeah and the genesis of Peter's decision in the film to transition to Petra comes from a conversation that he and Betsy have while they're smoking weed about a film that he hasn't yet made, that he's written but hasn't made, called www.rachelorman.com, which Betsy told, Betsy told me is a psychedelic techno satire about growing up in captivity. So basically what happens in actors is that Peter and Betsy are smoking weed, she's putting on makeup, he puts on some lipstick, starts posing in the mirror and talking about, about how he should play the lead in this movie, rachelorman.com. And that's really the seed of the idea that later becomes his transformation into Petra. Does that make sense? Yeah. He, in the movie, he puts on his sister's lipstick and is like, I should play this female character in the film I'm working on. And that film exists in real life or will exist in real life. But in this movie, that becomes the seed of his idea to go trans. Yes. Okay. You got it. So this is autofiction, whatever that is. I'm so fucking glad I don't live in New York. But the point is... Peter and Betsy reach out to Crumpler, Crumps. Crumps? Crumps. And are like, hey, dude, do you want to be in the movie www.rachelorman.com? And he's like, sure, I'll be your villain. Sounds good. Okay. So the filming of this is a theater in Union Square. Wait, so he's going to be in a, in a scene of rachelorman.com where he plays a villainous character. He plays he himself, yes. Everybody's okay. playing some version Crumps. of themselves. Crumps. Crumps. You, just one name. Everyone knows who Crumps is. Right. Okay. So the filming is at a theater in Union Square, and the Ion Pack guys are there, and Peter and Betsy are there, and Dasha is there, and so is Curtis Yarvin. Jesse, do you want to give a sentence on Curtis Yarvin? <laughs> oh, my God. Curtis Yarvin is, like, beloved by all these tech guys, including Peter Thiel. He has, like, some sway with folks close to Trump. Um, uh, he some of his stuff gets pretty close to fascism. He's basically neo-reactionary, incredibly skeptical of democracy. He thinks democracy hides the fact that a thing called the cathedral runs everything behind the scenes. Um, there was just a good, there's a lot of like good stuff that's been written on Curtis Yarvin. There's just a piece by um, Damon Linker uh, that you should check out, but he's, he's like really out there politically, really far to the right. I think. Will you put that in the show notes? Yeah. Okay, one of the t the come town guys are there. Taylor Lorenz is supposed to be there, but she had a scheduling conflict, so she couldn't be there. Crumpler sees himself as this critical eye on the downtown scene. He's there. A bunch of extras who saw Peter's casting call on Instagram are there. And the casting call, it was pitched as both a film shoot and a party. So Crumpler gets there, signs a release form. Crumps. Crumps. And... Uh, and then one of the guys from the Ion Pack podcast explains that what they're about to do is shoot a scene in the film that's supposed to embody a YouTube comment section or a 4chan message board. And so they start in real life. In though. real life. What could go wrong? Right. And so they start shooting and Crumpler is seated in the center of this of the audience. And so it's right. It's at a theater. And it starts with Peter saying, Crumps, what is fascism? So Crump starts channeling his inner Jason Stanley and explaining fascism and the camera turns to Curtis Jarvin, and he talks for a while about why fascism is good, actually, or whatever. And then the other hipster art fags take their turns, and then the randos in the audience weigh in. Here's how Crumpler describes that that part. These people were encouraged to say whatever random edgelord vulgarities popped into their heads, which meant a lot of slurs, proclamations about how circumcision is worse than abortion, <laughs> holocaust jokes, and so on. Is, is, wait, is, wait, under, I'm confused about that. Is abortion bad? 
circumcision is worse than a boy. I can't even parse that. <laughs> These okay. dumb kids. It was clearly very cringe and embarrassing, and it seemed to immediately confirm my initial commentary about the utter emptiness of this transgression as an as an aesthetic pose. Well, but I'm so confused by there's so many dumb dumb layers here. It's like a layer cake of stupid. <laughs> He's told we're going to film the equivalent of a live uh, 4chan page or YouTube comments page. Mm-hmm. And then he's surprised that that gets vulgar and ugly. Right. I don't even understand the critique. Anyway, whatever. Right. Okay. So uh, he says that people kept redirecting the criticism to him. And then the scene is over. He goes outside for a cigarette, checks with some of the extras and cast members. And then they all go back inside for the next scene. And in that scene, Dasha, who's wearing anime makeup, and Betsy are in the theater. They're about to watch a film. And they're arguing about like who is base and who is cringe. And Curtis Yarvin is in that scene as well. And then that scene wraps, and before everyone leaves, Peter turns to Cromps and, quote, demanded that I explain to the whole crowd the review that I wrote of actors. He asked why I wrote such a negative review after saying that I liked the movie when they first cornered me at the Roxy, and why I described his part as a Sam Heidian minstrel show caricature. And this is where shit starts to get weird. So <laughs> No, it is. It's weird for <laughs> This is where shit starts to get right weird. Right now. Before this, okay. all normal. Everything was normal. It yeah. was just Phil. Okay, go ahead. So Peter turns to Betsy and tells Betsy to ask Crumps about the review. So Betsy starts questioning him. And then the other people in the audience start. So wait, sorry. In this situation, Peter's almost like a director. He is a director. Saying like, ask it. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And then the other people start questioning him as well, and he's trying to explain himself, and the crowd is jeering. I'll read you a bit more here. The scene was reaching new heights of insanity. Someone asked if I was a a tranny chaser, and then others joined in, a taunting chorus asking if I was a tranny chaser from all directions, and even Yarvin's ponderous voice, tranny chaser, tranny chaser? I had imagined he would have assumed some distance from all this vulgarity with his pose of intellectual authority among these people. But I guess all fascists really are the same at the end of the day, hobbits that think they're dark elves, to use his metaphor. There were others telling me to kill myself. It was an orgy of vitriol. Can't you see how ridiculous you people look to literally anyone outside this place? I asked the crowd. But who cares what other people think? They responded. Caring about what this looks like just reveals my Philistine small-mindedness. I only care about what other people think, not about the true, not about true art that comes from the heart. Yarvin said that I was on the side of the hegemonic order, the side of MasterCard, and that when the choice is whether to take the side of MasterCard, the correct choice is always the opposite. The denunciations continued. Can I just say one thing amazing about yeah. that, for that accusation coming from Yarvin, is that Yarvin himself has said that America should be run by a CEO. So this was a... He was, Yarvin wants yeah. like a corporation. Yeah. I, maybe it was okay. a compliment, yeah. So what he's describing is pretty fucking close to a struggle session, and... Like, I'm not inclined to be sympathetic to Mike Crumps or really anybody in this scene, but it is very, very creepy. And I was reminded of my own struggle session with self-appointed leaders of Seattle's trans community in 2017 after my detransition story came out. I'm sure I've told you on the, told this on the podcast before, but for anybody who doesn't remember, I was invited, coerced into a meeting with self-appointed leaders of Seattle's trans community and a, a few other staffers at The Stranger. It was sold to me as uh, as a meeting about how stranger reporters could better source stories from the trans community. And when I got there, it was that for like, well, first there was like rounds of, of fucking 
introductions and pronoun recitations every time somebody new would show up. But after a little while, a trans woman stood up and basically was like, why are we talking about this? We're here to talk about that shit article. And then it just turned into a fucking struggle session where like my coworkers were sitting there not saying a word, not defending me while I'm taking all of this hate from, and <laughs> by the way, every fucking person there was a trans woman. Uh-huh. <laughs> so when I was reading this, I had this like visceral response because I know what it's like to be in a crowd of people yelling at you. And this was, um, there were probably 15 people at my struggle session. He's talking about a, th- a theater full of people screaming at him and calling him names. It was a little different because Crumps was sort of asking for it. Like he agreed. Okay. I mean, I'm sure he didn't know what he was agreeing to, but like it's yes. a weird situation. So I talked to Betsy about this and I, I told her like, I'm, it's hard for me to, to not feel very bad for this guy because I've been in this position before and it is incredibly ugly and stressful to be the, to be the target of that sort of IRL vitriol. And she basically said he knew what he was getting into. And by writing about this, which he did, he is engaged in this, his own form of auto fiction and he's turning himself into this martyr character when really this is just art. And they were trying to personify exactly what social mile social media pylon feels like and this is what it feels like regardless crumpler when he wrote about this he titled his post my own dime square fascist humiliation ritual and this is where the allegations that betsy is a literal fascist come from <laughs> and if you recall from that email i read you earlier that was sent to the music box and then posted on twitter part of it read Peter Vack clearly doesn't care about trans people given his encouragement to a crowd of fans in a movie he directed last summer to shout anti-trans slurs at those present. That's what this was referring to. Oh, so that's Calling Kruplar a trans chaser. Well, here's here's another thing. Betsy told me that it was a trans woman who started, <laughs> started the tranny chaser, <laughs> the tranny chaser refrain. So it's clearly like somewhat taken out of context. And it did, from his writing, it did appear to be, at least in the moment, somewhat of a traumatic experience from Crumpler. And this was not scripted. I asked Betsy, like, was this part of the plan to turn to him after the filming of this scene and ask him about the actor's review? And she said, no, it wasn't. But she also pointed out that he has profited from this. He has. People actually read this blog post, unlike most of what he has written before. And he's become a bona fide part of the scene that he critiques. No crumps, no. Yeah, and he was included in Airmail's downtown set. This is a list of 50, very glossy, a list of 50 young New Yorkers who are remaking Lower Manhattan in their own image. And this list included the Ion Pack guys. It did not include Dasha, but it did include crumps. (laughs) So it's sort of interesting that the same thing that happened when he was writing about incels appears to have happened in his writing about the downtown scene. Oh my God. He's like a, there's some kind of like chameleon aspect to his personality that he can't control where he becomes whatever he writes. about. Yeah. So I, I reached out to him to ask what he thinks about people citing his essay in an attempt to get Betsy Brown's film canceled. And uh, he said that he has no objection to this quote. I think what, it, what I showed in my essays was a portrait of the audience that they are cultivating. And if people think that is fucked up, that such an audience is coming to their city and taking up all the space, it's their right to protest. Taking up all their space. No one's heard of any of this. <laughs> Take up. Oh, yeah. You, you can't walk down the street without running into those. Di- I mean, it's so insular and random. Um, yes. Oy. Yeah. And for her part, Betsy, she's says that she's she's horrified by the reception to her film and the accusations that she's transphobic and or fascist. She said, it feels like a gross misunderstanding of what I am. 
I'm not surprised, but I do have a huge amount of faith in the work that I'm doing, and I know that these accusations are not correct. Uh, she also says that there's also been an outpouring of support in addition to the hate, and as I told her, being falsely accused of transphobia might cost you some friends and opportunities, but it can also lead to a semi-popular podcast. Um, what a... Uh... What a weird Dude, scene. I think you should get involved. I honestly, I, I did. I a lot of that those contexts were either new to me or I didn't remember when I I did read Crump's Dime Square Humiliation Ritual last year, and I was like, this is just too weird for our podcast. I don't know how you pulled that off. I thought this is like too in the weeds even for us, but uh, you really did it. You and Crumps. Thank you, Jesse. <laughs> yes, thank you, Crumps. I couldn't have done it without Crump, without the big man upstairs, Crumps. <laughs> And I watched the movie. I watched some fucking avant-garde for this, Jesse. Yeah. Well. I've got to go watch like five hours of fucking Notting Hill right now. I had to fucking listen to Steven Crowder for a significant span for our most recent Primo episode. So we've both been through some shit. The things we do for the podcast. Um, all right. Well, thank you for that, Katie. This has been Blocked and Reported. As always, we're produced with help from Tracy Woodgrains and from Lex, the mysterious Lex. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, Dime Square is so last week. Quarter Square is where it's at. And I'm Katie Herzog, and also remember, schools don't need to tell parents when their kids transition, but they do need to tell parents when their kids get involved in avant-garde art. <laughs>